All right, sorry for that delay. So Isaiah chapter 42. We're just going to read the last section before we get into um, studying this together. So Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to read now about the other servant. It's not the same servant that we started out to read about. Starting at verse 18. Hear you, deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He does many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to save, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose ways we, they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. This message, I'm going to call it a tale of two servants, because there are two servants message, mentioned in this passage don't read carefully, you think it's talking about the same servant all the way through, and yet if it is, then there is a massive contradiction between the first few verses and the last few verses. The one servant is presented in a very positive, very victorious light, and the other servant is presented as deaf and blind and incompetent. Really what we have here is a picture of the saving work of God over against the picture of the plight of mankind who, though they try, cannot fulfill the righteousness that God requires. And in the middle we have a song. So we've got a tale of two servants, and in the middle there is a song with a reprise or a response from the Lord. Let's look first at God's servant, God's chosen one, as he is revealed in the first nine verses. This is one of four servant songs um, in the book of Isaiah. One is in chapter 42, another is in chapter 49, another is in chapter 50, and then another is in the fifth chapters, the end of 52 and chapter, uh, chapter 53, the whole chapter. These are um, songs that all reference and um, paint a picture of the, the ministry of Jesus as Messiah, as coming King, as the one who will come and restore righteousness, as the one who will come and destroy his enemies, as the one who will come and bring in um, forgiveness of sins and healing for the disease of the world. So let's first look at the, the Lord's chosen servant. In verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is such a wonderful and clear picture of Jesus Christ. Behold my servant whom I uphold. You recall that Jesus, as he ministered on the world, said, I do nothing unless I see my Father do it. Do you recall that when he suffered in the desert, being tempted by the devil for 40 days without food, so he was very frail and very weak, he, rather than calling upon his divine power, which he could have, to make the stones bread or to somehow sustain for himself physically, he made himself dependent upon his Father, upon the Word of God. And even to the point where at the end of those 40 days, the Lord sent angels to minister to him, to bring him back to health. 
without, because of the advanced state of starvation that he would have been in. Jesus modeled for us being upheld by the Father. And he showed us what it means to live in dependence upon God. It says, My chosen in whom my soul delights. Can you think of any passage of Scripture where the Lord makes known his delight in Jesus Christ? Is there something that just comes to mind? There's at least two, two places in the New Testament I can think of. Jeff, have you got one? Okay, that's, that's probably the most obvious one. The baptism of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son, in whom I, have, in whom I am well pleased. And the same thing happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So the Lord delights in His servant. Jesus Christ, in this case, is His servant. Then in the next verse it says, I will put my spirit upon Him. Think of the baptism of Jesus Christ. We have a visual image of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit descending upon him bodily in the form of a dove. Now Jesus was never absent or never did not have the Holy Spirit because Jesus is in himself not only man but God. So he was never with, without the Holy Spirit but there is a special um, anointing, there is a special um, choosing and empowering from the Father, the whole, the Father, the Spirit and the Son are all involved in this ministry of the servant. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. When it says the nations, the best way to think of it is to immediately um, think of nations. Every one, every nation that is outside of God's chosen people, Israel. Now, the nations go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Remember, after the flood, there were eight people left. And they did their best to uh, fulfill the original command that had been given to Adam and Eve, which was to be fruitful and multiply. But they sort of left off the one part of it, which was to replenish or to fill the earth. And they grouped themselves into cities. And they magnified the corruption that was already in the world because of sin. And God's initial command was to spread out. So God did something in order to see to it that his will would be accomplished. And he divided their languages. He made it so they couldn't communicate and they had to spread out. So that's where the nations started. And in their cultural memory, they did not recall even a couple of generations back when God destroyed the entire world and left only eight. They became deaf and blind to the revelation that God had given them and they continued in their wickedness they continued despite the warnings that God gave through, through his people Israel and through other prophets um, who, with whom they intersected alright so we understand that this is Jesus Christ is talking about if you were to talk to maybe some Jewish rabbis they might or maybe even some liberal scholars, they would say, well, this is Isaiah talking about himself. In one sense, it probably is. Isaiah is aware that he is God's servant, that he is chosen, that God's spirit is upon him, and that he has a message which is intended for all the nations, and that there will be justice. But Isaiah surely would have known that God would not accomplish all this through him. And when you read about his other passages, about the the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, you understand that this could not be fulfilled in Isaiah. Let's look at the character of the ministry of the servant whom God upholds. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Think back on what you know of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Do you ever read about him launching a massive advertising campaign saying, Jesus Christ is going to be here on such and such a day. 
you know, and, and all sorts of gimmicks in order to draw people to himself. And what you have is people being supernaturally drawn and divinely sent and, and inexplicably drawn to his words because no man ever spoke as this man spoke. And some came really out of, out of spite and out of um, get, gathering information so they could later have their will and crucify him. But Jesus did not attract a crowd. He did not cry aloud or lift up his voice until, until on the cross lifted up his voice and he cried out with a loud voice. We know from the Gospel of John that he cried out, it is finished. It was his atoning death. That was the whole goal of his ministry. It says that a brood reed will he not break and a smoking wick or burning wick he will not quench. Now what kind of a mighty ruler is so tender and so gentle that he will not even step on a bruised reed. That he will not even quench a smoking wick. Think of a smoking candle wick. Um, it's not a pleasant thing. It's, it's, uh, and especially if you're thinking of the kind of candles that they would have used when Isaiah wrote this using natural wax or tallow or something like that. If the wick was not properly trimmed, there would be black, billowing, stinky smoke. But Jesus is not thinking about the smoke. He's not thinking about the, um, all of the offense, all of the sin. He's thinking about the faith. And he's looking at this spark of life that he has given. And he will not quench that spark of life. He will not break a bruised reed. There is a tenderness in the ministry of Jesus Christ to those who are His. This is an extension of the comfort we read in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, it is really, it's really important to understand here that this does not mean that Jesus tiptoes around every human being and that he would never do anything to offend or hurt. God is against the proud. He is against those who are against him. And those who come against him and defy him and defy his people, it's very clear that God will execute judgment upon them. But he has another role, and that is to redeem his hurting people, his languishing people, the remnant that are hanging on in spite of all of the opposition that's coming against them. It says he will faithfully bring forth justice. Why is that reed bruised? Why is that wick smoldering? There's been opposition, there's been adversity. And he will not ignore that adversity. He will not ignore the plight of those who are hoping in him. He will come to their aid in justice. It says the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands wait for his law. This is really a prophetic statement. But did you know that Jesus came not only to redeem his own people, the people that initially rejected him when he came and crucified him, but he came to redeem the coastlands. His ministry is global in scope. Jesus is the Savior, not only for Israel, but for the, for the whole world. Jew and Gentile are going to be brought in and to be brought together as one, as one man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and they are going to worship him together in the new Jerusalem. We can get kind of messed up if we try to think in one way or another about Jerusalem. It is my conviction, and if you will, if you if you doubt this, I would encourage you to read carefully chapters 40 all the way through to the end of Isaiah. And see if anywhere in that passage there is any indication that God will abandon Israel, the nation of Israel, the, dis- the physical descendants of Abraham, who uh, the, the capital is in Jerusalem, there is no temple now, but there, that there is a plan of God to restore the fortunes of Israel and to bring, to promise him, prom- uh, to fulfill the promises given way back, even in the book of Deuteronomy, of prosperity and of peace for that nation. That's one aspect. But there is also the fact that in the New Covenant, initiated by Jesus Christ and really personified in Jesus Christ, that all nations are drawn in and made children of Abraham by faith, by faith, and are brought in to covenant with God, not through a circumcision made with hands, but by a circumcision of the heart. There is, uh, there is life given, there is a new heart given, so that there really is a new creature in Christ. And those that will constitute the people of God, the last day's people of God, the new Jerusalem, consist of both Jews and Gentiles who are no longer at, uh, under the, uh, the condemnation of the law, but they are living in the new covenant, the new law of Christ, and are given hearts that love Him and are actually guaranteed of self, guaranteed salvation and hope and everlasting life, not through their own merits, but through the one who, through the one who initiated that covenant through Jesus Christ. So it, it's kind of common to kind of put all of your to think in one way or another to think of spiritual Zion or the church, or to think of. Um, earthly Zion and Israel and to kind of keep those things separate. My reading of scripture, that all comes together in the end. Paul says, it is the, don't, don't be bitter against the root or against the vine that you're grafted into. The picture is, Gentiles are grafted in by faith into the vine Vine, uh, which is Israel. But it says, don't be bitter against the root. It is not you that support the root. It is the root that supports you. So there's, there's a great gathering and a great... It is really a mystery how this is all going to work in the end. But I believe in a literal Jerusalem, a literal reign of Jesus Christ, where Jews and Gentiles are all represented as the people of God. All right. That was a, a long rabbit trail, but I think it's... I'm, I'm trying to explain my thoughts, and I, I, these thoughts are developing as I'm reading through Isaiah. I, I've studied it in three ways this week. I've, I've, I've specifically studied this passage, this servant song in its context, and I've looked at all the servant songs, and then I've tried to look at the whole... everything that's in between there from 40 to, uh, to 66. And um, so this is all developing in my mind as well. All right. Let's go on to verse 5. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes in it, who gives breath to the people and a spirit to those who walk in it. There's some basic theology. God is our creator. God is the giver of life. This is what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now, this is not a passage 
that we right away say, oh, it says, I've called you, I'm going to apply it to myself. You've got to be really careful not to do that whenever it says, I am Scripture, to put yourself in there. This is a very, very unique passage in that it is the Father actually speaking to the Son in the context of the Godhead, in the context of the Trinity, the communion that they share. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. It says, Thus says the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth, and what comes from it. And verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now in some way, if you were just to stop there, you could say, well, that could kind of refer to Israel. God's desire and God's plan for Israel was to be a light for the nations. They were to be God's representative people, and His glory was to be um, guarded within them and among them, and their obedience would bring glory to God. And He would also make them an example. He would punish them when they strayed. But this is not Israel here. This is the servant whom God upholds. This is the servant in whom God delights. This is the righteous servant. Jeremiah calls Jesus Christ, he gives him the title, the Lord our righteousness. This is none other than Jesus that he's speaking to here. I will make you as a covenant, or I will make you a covenant for the people. It is unlike any other covenant, because Jesus Christ, not only is it an agreement, or is it a, um, a statement of fact, laid out by God, but he himself is the one who was torn, who bled, in order to ratify the covenant, in order to seal it, in order to make it binding. He himself is the covenant. Think about the people trying to keep the covenant of the law and failing. Think about the failed, the failing servant we read in the last part of this chapter, the blind, deaf servant who has all the, uh, the advantage of knowing the will of God, having the law and the prophets and the writings all laid out for them, and yet they continue to act as if God is not even speaking to them. They hear, but they, can't, they have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. This is a covenant so much greater than that first covenant. I will give you, he's Father saying to the Son, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the, dark, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see what's happening here? I, the Lord, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, but we've just seen Him glory, giving glory to the Son. There is unity, there is, a, there is shared glory, there is shared essence between the Father and the Son. He's not going to give it to idols or anything else that men call God. But the only begotten Son of God, He's the one who makes God known to us. Now in verse 9, it says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So this is sort of an interlude here, where, where Isaiah the prophet is saying, There are things... You've seen what the Lord has done in the past. But through this servant, things are going to happen that you haven't heard about. We sang this morning about the mystery, the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians and Colossians, they go into great detail about the mystery of the gospel. 
of redeemed men out of every tribe and nation and tongue. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, all being brought into this one covenant through the blood of Christ and into Christ. That was something that even until that mystery was laid out for us in the New Testament, um, people, it, this idea of the church, this idea of a one people of God, it was something that was foreign, it was inaccessible. The Jews had no concept of how the nations of the Gentiles would be brought in. Alright, so there we have really a character sketch of the chosen one, the servant, in whom the Lord delights. In between here we have a song, which is in response to this servant, in response to the new thing that the Lord is about to do. Let's, let's uh, listen to the song together. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Again, that is a global, this is a global song. There, there is going to come a day when God and Christ will be glorified from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The sea is often a metaphor of the nations of the world. Um, this, uh, like of all of the all the peoples of the world, every tribe, people, nation, and tongue, the coastlands and their inhabitants. So it's talking about the, the spread out lands. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, the inhabitants of Seba, sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. You see, there is a day coming when, from one end of the earth to the other. The Lord's name will be great, and every knee will bow, and He will rule, and He will reign. And it says specifically that it's in the context of nations here. Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. And the, Teresa um, had mentioned that she was reading the book of Jeremiah, and she said there was a phrase that just hit her between the eyes, that the Lord is a dread warrior. There is so much in Scripture that talks about Jesus as a warrior. So think about, think about being in a land that is under oppression, and a deliverer comes. A deliverer comes from Zion. A deliverer comes with a, a sword in his mouth and a name written on his, his thigh. Um, he comes with eyes of fire riding a white horse. A dread warrior. It says here, it doesn't use the word dread warrior, but it says the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he boasts himself mighty against, or pardon me, he shows himself mighty against his foes. So many times in this book of Isaiah we have seen the coming of the Lord and we see that He comes in redemption but also in wrath. That He comes to execute justice against His foes but He comes also in recompense for Zion, for His people. Uh, these, these, these are equally important aspects of the character of God. And so He is coming here as a deliverer. At the same time, He's not going to break a bruised reed, and he's not going to put out a smoke, smoking wick. Those whom he has called, those whom he has caused to be afflicted, the remnant out of Zion, he's going to carefully gather them in the midst of all this tumult. He's going to spare them, he's going to redeem them, restore them, he's going to speak words of comfort to them. Now we get to hear from the warrior. We get to hear his thoughts as he's coming. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I believe this is written in phenomenal terms, in human terms, anthropomorphic terms, so that we understand. I don't think God really has any trouble restraining himself. But there is, this, there is this desire in his heart to rescue his people, 
to act in redemption, to act in forgiveness of sins, to wash away their sins so that they can be called his people. And yet he's holding back. He's withholding so many things. He's withholding his justice against his enemies and against the enemies of his people. He's withholding his final drawing of his people and his making a straight path for them to come. But it says, I've held my peace, I've kept my still and restraint. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Now, I've only ever witnessed one woman in labor. That was my wife. But I don't think that there's a more powerful and more resounding cry than that of a woman in labor. It's the cry that's bringing a life into this world and there is much adversity to overcome to bring that child into the world. Um, it, it is, uh, I don't know, it's just an interesting phrase that the Lord uses to describe himself here. I will gasp and pant. There's something that's going to come out of this cry. There's something new. I'm about to do a new thing. There's something new that is going to be brought about as this servant comes into the world. I will lay waste mountains and hills. I will dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. That, it's not an, uh, an image of devastation. It's an image of preparation. It's, it's like the flood. You remember when the, when, or not the flood, the Red Sea, when, when Moses held out his rod and the sea parted and they went across on dry land. That was God's way of providing salvation for his people, of, of bringing them and placing them in a place where they would have to rely upon him in order to um, escape and in order to enter into the promised land. So he's going to dry up the pools. Look what else he's going to do. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. There's a tenderness. He's going to conquer and make war. And yet, he's going to lead his blind people. He's going to gently lead them through the wilderness. They don't even, they can't even see yet. But he's going to lead them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. Now think about it. He's leading blind people. What difference does light make to them? Are blind people going to be less blind if there's more light? You see, there's something else going on here. He's giving them eyes to see. He's opening up their, their, their vision. He is giving them spiritual sight. He is revealing himself to them. God began to do this when Jesus Christ came into the world. And when he proclaimed the kingdom of God, when he proclaimed and where he exposited and exegeted the law of God, when it says, and the, the word, or pardon me, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son of God, he has, the Greek word is exegeted him. When we exegete scripture, we make clear the meaning, we bring out the, the, the truth that is there in the text. And this is what Jesus did. He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the glory of God. Now, that glory was rejected by the most part for, by God's people. There were some who saw his glory and believed and were brought into the kingdom, but there were many who rejected it. There's going to be another manifestation. There's going to be another exegesis of the glory of God at the end of the age when he comes in power and great glory. And I believe there will be repentance among God's people on that day. In the, meanwhile, in the meantime, he is exegeting himself. He is making himself known through his word and through the Holy Spirit whom he has sent to live within us who brings God's word to bear upon the life of every believer. And in it, indeed, it is the living word of God. It is the sharp, quick.
quick, powerful, two-edged sword that pierces even down into the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And while it reveals us, it also reveals Him. It reveals God. And we, we come to Him in repentance, in faith. So I will turn the darkness before them into light. When Jesus came into the world, it said that the prophecy that was quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is that light. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. God is going to accomplish these things. He's not going to forsake his duty, and he's not going to forsake his people. Christ will accomplish what Christ came to do. It's not done yet. His redemptive work is finished on the cross. His, his atoning work is finished. The debt has been paid for sin. But his ultimate redeeming and gathering work, that's still ongoing. And we're going to, we're going to see that. We're going to see that day. Either we're going to be raised to see that day, or we will, as many as live and our remain, will be caught up to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. One way or another, we're going to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to see his glory when he comes and like lightning that flashes from the east to the west and is visible to the whole world. Then this little section closes here like this. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. So there is a distinction here between the people who are beholding their God to the people who, whose eyes are being opened and are seeing who Jesus is and the people who are whittling away in their workshops making little dolls, little idols, propping them up so that they don't fall down. There's all through these, this last section in Isaiah, there is a running commentary on the foolishness and the ridiculousness and the insanity of men worshipping the work of their own hands, calling it God. And we think that is really, that is really strange, that is really silly. But every conception of God other than the revealed God of Scripture. Every conception of God is an idol. And God is saying, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols. Even at the end of the age when Jesus returns, there will be idolatry. Now, so, in this servant song of seeing Jesus clearly revealed, and, and then this song of response about this mighty warrior coming. And in the hearing the thoughts of God himself, there is so much here. And yet, in spite of all this light, in spite of all the truth that God's people have, there are still people who do not see and do not hear. That's what this last section is about. Now, he's speaking specifically in the context to Israel. But this book has a wider scope than Israel. The categories remain the same. There are people who see, and there are people who do not see. There are people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And there are people who are alive because God has given them life. He's given them eyes to see. And until we have eyes to see, we are these people. We're deaf. We're blind. That's why the gospel is so important. It is the power of God to salvation. That's why the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. It brings the dead to life. It opens eyes that are blind. 
And though many will hear it and reject it, those whom the Father has calling will hear it and receive it. And they will be as Lazarus brought to life in the tomb. It was no act of will on Lazarus's part that brought him to life. It was the word of God that said, come forth. And that is Jesus' drawing. But we need to understand what we're up against here. You can use the nation of Israel as an example if you want. People who minister and who preach to some of, some of the people of Israel, they say that there's so many layers of defense. That there's such a blindness. But when one truly turns to Jesus, it's a radical transformation. So let's just listen. And as you think of this, you might, you might say, well, you know, that's me. I'm still blind. I'm still deaf. I haven't, I haven't received, I, I, I haven't been given this understanding of this new thing through this, the servant that God is bringing to pass. But just listen, hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. So there's also obviously some possibility that the deaf and the blind will, deaf will hear and the blind will see. Who is blind but my servant? Now he's talking about Israel. Or death is my messenger. By the way, we could, we could broaden this and say, just as there is, just as there is a, a true Zion, and then there are, there's visible Zion, there's a true church. There's a visible church, and within that is a true church. And within the true church, there are deaf and blind people. So now we say, my servant is blind. Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Think about the law that had been given to the Jews. Written in tablets of stone upon a mountain. It was glorious. Corinthians says it's a fading glory compared to the glory of Christ. But it was glorious. It was terrible. It was awesome. They were scared even to go near that mountain. They knew that God had spoken to them. And in that law, God's glorious character, His holiness was so clearly laid out. We're talking about the whole Torah here. And the law and the prophets and the writings. They had so much and God's word was before them. They memorized it. They wrote it down. They copied it. And yet they, in so many cases, they missed it. But this is a people plundered and looted. Here's a consequence for being blind to the law of God and ignoring the law of God. Here's a people plundered and looted. They are, all of them, trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to save, restore. Who among you will hear, give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Now you might wonder, why are these people in this predicament? Well, he's about to tell us. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? See, that's what the Lord does in order to draw his people back. In order to act in redemption, he gives them up and allows them to follow their own desires to a place where they are humble and broken. And either they will become humble and broken or they will become harder and more defiant and they will turn against him. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? That's the one who gave them up, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger, in the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. You realize that sometimes the Lord sends war, and fire, and natural disaster. Not so that man will shake their fist at God. Or that man will say, where was God? 
But so the man will say, there was God. God was in that. What is he trying to say to us? The problem is we're very blind and deaf as a culture. And we do not understand that these things are part, still part of God, how God speaks. All right. Well, I would encourage you, if you can, if you have time, at least to, to, to read through from Isaiah 43 to, 50, to 53. Read through the rest of this. And you're going to see God's interaction with these blind, deaf people. And God's continual, persistent promise that he's going to bring them down. He's going to bring them to a place of humility. But he is going to redeem them in spite of themselves. Not because of their righteousness, but he is going to make sure that his people come. And not only out of Israel, but there's a, there, it, I think it's in chapter 48. It, it begins to talk about... People are, your, your children are going to be coming into your land and you're going to be saying, where did these children come from? I didn't give birth to these children. And you know what it's going to be? It's going to be the nations who are bringing their children. I think that's a picture of the gospel going out into all the earth. That those who are not of the natural offspring of Abraham, but are part of the spiritual offspring through faith, this is the final kingdom that we're going to see. Um, anyway, there's lots to get excited about in these, in these uh, verses. And yeah, I would encourage you, I would challenge you, read prayerfully through the, the rest of the, the book of Isaiah. Um, and just look for, look for the servant, look for the two servants. The successful servant, the faithful servant, Jesus. And a faulty servant, Israel. But remember that everyone who hears the word of God and doesn't act upon it and is not changed by it is under the judgment of God. Either the temporary judgment for the purpose of redemption or ultimately the eternal judgment of God. The, the lines are very clearly drawn. Uh, thank the Lord that He is a God who has His arm outstretched still in salvation. Let's pray and uh, we'll have the elders come. We're going to observe communion together. Thank you, Father, for this precious passage from Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You do not forget Your people and that You are not slow concerning your promise that you will come in injustice you will come in retribution but you also come in redemption and Lord until that day until the gospel has gone out into to every tribe nation and tongue Lord you're not done and we look to you for mercy we thank you Lord that you've entrusted the preaching of the gospel to us. Even to the point that you called us to bring to jealousy the people who you initially called the nation of Israel. You've called us to make them jealous. And in order to do that, Lord, we know that you have to be with us. You have to glorify yourself in your church. Lord, you have to take away our fear. Lord, you need to empower us because we have no strength in our own, on our own. Thank you, Lord, that you are a redeeming God. And for your great plan, I thank you, Lord, for the new thing that you did and are doing through Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Elders, come forward, please.
so we uh, I'll just uh, in our passage today we read of Jesus Christ being given as a covenant that every covenant is brought into being through the shedding of blood and earth and God's oath was that he would redeem people for himself out of every tribe nation that he would accomplish salvation through his righteous right arm, Jesus. And this meal, this, this um, representative and symbolic meal reminds us that Jesus Christ is our covenant. He is our way to come to God. We cannot come to him through our own efforts. We fail when we try to keep God's laws on our own. And yet, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins and transgressions are washed away, and we come boldly into His presence. The, the temple veil is torn. The veil is torn. And we enter the holy place through Jesus. The veil symbolically is the body of Jesus Christ. His blood shed So, I would uh, just remind you that the condition of participating in this meal is that you are in that covenant, that you are in Christ, that you are trusting in Him alone as your access into the holy place, as your redemption, as your salvation, as the covering for your sins. And there's nothing other that you are bringing except your empty hands. The only thing you contribute to your own salvation is your sin. Jesus Christ has paid it all. And if Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and you know it, then you are welcome to participate in this. So the first element that, of our meal is the bread which Jesus likens to his body. His body, of course, was sailed to the cross and he gave up his life for us. And when Jesus first gave this meal, he, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as you take the bread, remember the body that Jesus willingly laid down for us on the cross. He laid down and people pounded nails through his wrists and through his feet. They they uh, struck down a crown of thorns upon his head, and his head and his hands and his feet bled. And that blood that was shed um, was for our sins. So he laid down his life for us. He gave his body as our sacrifice. Please hold on to the bread when you receive it, and then we'll pray and take it all together.